Hi, this is Al Aguilar, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's my joy to be with you on this Sunday, July 31st. All right, let's get started. Welcome to part four of our sermon series, Not a Fan. Today, we're going to continue our emphasis on whether you're a fan or a follower of Jesus Christ. Our scripture reference today is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. So get out your Bible or Bible apps, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, and follow along as I read. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Join me in an opening word of prayer, won't you? Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing opportunity we have to study today, again, to define clearly whether we are fans or followers of Jesus. Lord, in this message today, the title of it is called, Is the Cross Offensive to You? Well, we're going to discuss that, Lord, and we just pray for open hearts and minds as we learn together. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Clarence Jordan, author of the Cotton Patch New Testament, was getting a red carpet tour of another preacher's church. With pride, the minister pointed to the rich imported pews and luxurious decorations. As they stepped outside, Darkness was falling, and a spotlight shone on a huge cross atop the steeple. The minister said, That cross alone cost us $10,000. Jordan looked up at the cross and said, You got cheated. Time was, you could get a cross for free. But most people back then didn't want one. Crosses back then were the way the Romans executed criminals. These days, we wear crosses as jewelry. Crosses decorate the walls of our homes. Churches have embedded them into their stained glass windows, and they place them on spires that advertise to the world that this is a church. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Using crosses like that is an excellent way to declare to the world who we belong to and what we believe. But using crosses so freely tends to make us forget what crosses are all about. Crosses were instruments of death. It was the most horrid way to die ever conceived by man. Some people have compared the cross of Christ to our modern-day executions by electric chairs or lethal injections. But people who've died in electric chairs or by lethal injections generally died in a matter of moments. By contrast, those who hung on crosses often died slowly over hours or even days. Imagine, if you will, wearing an electric chair for a pendant or decorating your house with pictures and plaques showing an attractive electric chair. Or how about putting an electric chair on the spire of a church building? How appealing would that be? I know it sounds nonsensical, but think about that for a moment. The cross was an instrument of death. That's how criminals died. 
And yet Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying, I want you to be dead. I want you dead to this world. I want you to be so dead to this world that it doesn't attract you anymore. That's what we were taught when we became Christians. Romans 6, 3 through 6 says, Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Jesus Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. There's a contemporary Christian singer-songwriter named Rob Frazier, and he wrote a song several years back, and this is a portion of it. It's actually the bridge of the song. He wrote, Now the truth is rising from the mist, and the word is this, that when Jesus calls a man, don't you know, he calls him to come and die. Dead people don't mind pain, don't get offended so they never complain. They're not concerned for personal gain. Does that sound like me or you? Is this a thought you can't abide, that God has a dangerous side? Now you can stand or you can run and hide, but he will do what he will do. He doesn't want you better, he wants you deader. That's actually the title of the song. He doesn't want you better. He wants you deader. Now, the problem for a lot of us is that we don't want to offend anybody. But the cross and all it stands for still offends people. I recently read about a pastor who was let go from his ministry because he refused to go along with the church in looking the other way when a deacon committed adultery. It was obviously a fairly difficult situation. And though the church liked the pastor, it seemed obvious he'd lose his job over the confrontation. In the midst of the issue, one of the members of the church, a local golf club owner, not a Christian, invited the pastor over to his house for a talk. He couldn't understand why this pastor would put his job and livelihood on the line for such an issue. The man said to the pastor, why not just let it go and let the deacon off? If you were in LA, you wouldn't preach against homosexuality, would you? The pastor said, well, yes, I would. But that was something this man couldn't understand. Why put your job on the line for something like biblical morality? Why follow the cross and lose your livelihood? One of the big things that's been and continues to be is the concern for people groups such as millennials, Gen Z, and Gen Alpha. Churches continue to be worried that they're not reaching these groups and they're thinking that they should change their messages to be more appealing. Well, if that's the case, then just how are they supposed to change their message? Laura Sessions Stepp, a Washington Post contributor, spoke this about millennials one time in an article she wrote, and this is what she said. Millennials don't appreciate being condemned for living with a partner, straight or gay, outside of marriage, or opting for abortion to terminate an unplanned pregnancy. I also found this true of the Gen Z and Gen Alpha groups, I reviewed at least a half dozen surveys of these groups that focused on their thoughts about religion. And what I found was that the teaching of the cross annoys and even offends them. So they go elsewhere. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.3, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. 
So they don't want to hear about the cross and what it means to them. They want to hear what they want to hear. Nothing more, nothing less. So how do you deal with itching ears? How do you deal with folks who are offended by the cross? Well, one option is just avoid offending them. Live and let live. Let them believe what they want to believe. After all, speaking up might make them mad. You might lose a friend or a job or an opportunity to get on in this world. Now, frankly, there are times to keep your mouth shut, no doubt. There are times when it's better not to say something than to end up saying something harsh or mean-spirited. I've been in conversations with people about things of God and all they want to do is argue. Their objective is to simply win an argument, not discuss the issue at all. But Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 23-26, Again I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. There are times when all folks want to do is just quarrel, and we're not supposed to quarrel. Don't get into it with them. Tell them you're not interested in discussing it right then. But where it is possible, we should gently instruct the person we're talking to. We should be kind and gentle with folks. We should not be resentful. Now, frankly, it's hard to be like that sometimes. Sometimes folks are, well, they're idiots. But what we need to understand is that many people live like they live and think like they think because they're going to hell. They don't know or understand the things of Christ. It makes no sense to them. So they'll die in their sins unless we can gently pull them closer to the cross. If all we do is argue with the lost, then the result is it makes them better arguers. They learn to dig deeper trenches and build higher walls. But if we're gentle and kind, it's harder for them to fight us. Also note that Paul stressed in 2 Timothy 2.25, we just need to let God win the argument. It's not our job to win the argument. And this is what 2 Timothy 2.25 says, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. You see, the goal is not to roll people over with our great wisdom. The goal is to point out to them how empty life is without Jesus. But we've got to be willing to present Jesus. We must be known for the cross of Christ. Folks need to know what we stand for. Paul wrote the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2.2, and he said, For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. To the Galatians, he wrote, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. That's Galatians 6.14. To the church in Rome, he wrote, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Gentile. Romans 1.16. Now, what would it be like if you decided to live like that? What would it be like if I decided to know nothing at my job except Jesus Christ and him crucified? It would mean that when I work, I work for my boss as if my boss were Jesus himself. 
My mortal boss may not be a very nice person to be around, but I must still work there as if pleasing Christ in my actions and ethics. What would it be like if I decided to know nothing in my family except Jesus Christ and him crucified? It would mean I have decided to treat my family as if they belong to Jesus. What would it mean if I decided to know nothing in my leisure time except Jesus Christ and him crucified? It would mean that while I'm out fishing or camping or laying in the hammock, I'm going to spend time talking to him and thanking him for the beauty of nature or for the pleasure of relaxing. I would do my best to focus my thoughts on him. And when you tell stories, oh my, growing up, my best friend's dad used to tell all kinds of neat stories, and I just loved listening to them. But a lot of the time, he was the hero in those stories. Through the years, the Lord has blessed me with the ability to tell stories, but I've decided to focus on stories that are not about me being the hero. Instead, I try to focus on stories that show God is the hero, stories that focus on Christ and him crucified. Now, very few people are going to be able to do that consistently. I'm a preacher, and I find it hard to do this effectively all the time. But what I'm trying to get you to see is the importance of Jesus and his cross influencing every aspect of our lives. You see, we tend to compartmentalize our lives. Now, if I go to one side of the room, I'm just picturing myself Sunday morning standing in front of the church. I'm going to go walk over to one side of the room and I'm going to say, God is over here on Sundays. We go to church, we sing songs, we pray prayers, we listen to the sermon and we have communion. Then I'm going to walk to the other side of the worship center or the sanctuary. But then the rest of our lives is over. Monday through Saturday, we do our things, but God isn't included because he's back there. I'll point to the other side of the room. We left him behind on Sunday. And we didn't bother to include him in our daily lives the rest of the week. And that's just the way the world would prefer it to be, because the cross is offensive to them. Some years ago, Rick Warren, preacher and popular religious writer, was asked to lead the invocation at President Obama's inauguration. There was no doubt it was a Christian prayer in which Warren invoked the name of Jesus at least four times and closed with the Lord's Prayer. Steve Chapman, a former columnist with the Chicago Tribune, wrote, if I were a Christian, I'd have been embarrassed by Rick Warren's invocation at the inauguration. It was aggressively evangelical, serving to exclude everyone who doesn't accept the divinity of Jesus. He seemed to think he was at a revival rather than a secular event meant for all in a country whose constitution rejects official sponsorship of any faith. So in a nutshell, that man was complaining that Rick Warren should have been an American first and Christian second. But that would have been an evil thing for Warren to have done, a very evil thing. Warren may have been there to pray an invocation for the President of the United States, but he was there as a representative of Jesus Christ. And in his prayer, Warren resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And if that upset others, that's just too bad, because that was what he was called to do. And beloved, that's what we are called to do. We were saved by the cross to become Christ representatives in this world. We have been called to be Christians first. We need to realize that that is the most important thing in our lives, because as Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, again, for I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The gospel of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection should be the most important thing in our lives, 
because it is by that gospel that we've been saved. Nothing else in this world should take first place in our lives. Nothing. So we are called to be Christians first and Americans second. Now, I am proud to be an American. This is a great country, and I've been blessed to be born here. But I'm more proud to belong to Jesus Christ. We're called to be Christians first, and a Republican or Democrat or whatever your political affiliation, second. We are Christians first, and employees of our companies, second. We are Christians first, and fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, grandparents, aunts, and uncles, second. Nothing else in this world should take first place in our lives. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because we've died to this world. We were buried in the waters of baptism and risen up to live for Jesus and stand for his cross in a lost world. And that, my friends, is what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like, not a fan. Let me close with these thoughts. I've read many articles over the years about archaeology or on archaeology. And one of the things that has caught my attention has been the fact that in ancient cultures, it was very important to many people to be buried with items that they loved in this life, such as in some graves, archaeologists have found mirrors and beauty items that appealed to women. Certain graves of men included tools and weapons they used in their former lives. An ancient grave in Italy had the remains of the owner's horse and chariot. And of course, in Egypt, the pyramids held the great wealth and possessions of ancient pharaohs that they hoped to use in the next world. One crypt even included a boat. Even in our present day, many people do the same thing. They put items in the caskets and graves of their loved ones that represent the things that they love most in this world. A Christian writer named Roger Duncan told about going to a funeral where a young man had been killed in a motorcycle accident. His mother buried him with the Harley-Davidson bike he'd been riding on when he died. Through her tears, the mother explained, it was his whole life. Duncan noted, how tragic to have a whole life wrapped up in a motorcycle. So my question to you today is this, beloved. If you died tomorrow, what would they put in your casket? What has been so important in your life that your family would put tokens in your grave? Would it be a political symbol? Would it be a souvenir of your hobbies or passions? Would it be a memento of the years that you've been working at a company? Or would your family fill your casket with something that stood for Jesus? You've been saved by the cross of Jesus Christ, my friends. You were supposed to have died to the things of this world. So have you died? Have you put your life on the cross? Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.